questions. Questions come every day of our lives, and so many of them come without any real expectation. You know, like when you're going through, do you want fries with that? Or maybe you're stopping that quick trip, and oh, would you like a glazer with that? Right after you buy your gasoline. No, I don't need a glazer with that. Yes, yes, you can't even buy just one glazer. You have to buy six of them. Come on. We get asked questions all the time, but sometimes, every once in a while, a question gets asked that changes our lives because it's not just a question, but it's truly an internal searching. I can remember it was 1996, and I was going through AIT at the time, which is Advanced Individual Training in the military. And I was down at Fort Bragg, and I was on fire watch, so anybody that's been in the military understands that we don't get to sleep at night when you're on training because you have to sit there and watch the barracks to make sure it doesn't burn down because it's a big brick building because that's really possible that's going to happen. But you can tell the irony in my voice, can't you? Yeah. Right, so it's just a way to kind of keep you awake every once in a while and not be able to sleep for long periods of time because they're trying to kind of break you down just a hair. And so I'm sitting there one night and my drill sergeant comes walking through and she goes, hey, you, you need to come with me. Okay, and then we start walking across the, we had the big, huge uh, mall in the middle of like four buildings. We had to walk to all the other buildings to make sure they weren't burning down either. <laughs> Great. So we start walking, and as we're walking through, we hit about the second building. I'm like, why am I out here? You don't need me for this. And she goes, you know, hey, I got a question for you. Okay, Great. You know, drill sergeant's asking questions, usually not a good thing. I'm probably going to end up pushing a whole lot at the end of this conversation. Great. Not only am I up at 2 o'clock in the morning watching brick buildings try not to burn down, I'm going to have to push for it too. Wonderful. What luck do I have? She goes, why are you here? I don't know. <laughs> because I have, you had told me to walk with you? <laughs> it wasn't what she was asking. What she was asking was, is why was I at AIT? Why was I in the military? Why had I joined? Why was I not pursuing other things? See, I was one of the only out of 50 Soldiers, one of the only college kids at the course. Yes, out of 50 kids, I was the only one there who was from college. Well, I think there's one other in the uh, PSYOP. Those were another 20 that were uh, attached with us. She was asking me, why are you here? Why aren't you going to officer candidate school? Why aren't you doing something greater than being enlisted? Now, I took great offense to that. I enjoyed my enlisted side. I think there's a lot of honor in serving on the enlisted side of the house. In fact, as an officer, I look at the enlisted side as being that which gets everything done in the military because I guarantee you the officers and me that I work with aren't getting it all done. I'll tell you that right off the bat. There's certain things that none of these guys are going to be doing. Ask the colonel to go change oil on a truck. Not happening. Promise you that. All right. So I kind of took some, like, well, what does it mean? But what she was saying was, is, I see so much more in you. Why aren't you living up to your potential? See, a question can change how you perceive something in and of itself. That was the first time in my life I actually stood up and started seeing myself for something more than what had been supplied to me throughout my youth. See, I had had a difficult time. In fact, at the time, I was probably battling a fight on whether or not I was going to become an alcoholic or not, whether I was going to flush out of school because I wasn't doing so good in school, and whether I was going to move on with life. My relationships were strained, to say the best, at the time. This question made me step back and really analyze something that was going on outside of just what the circumstances were that had been handed to me. What people had told me I should be. See, I was an engineering student at the time because everyone told me because my dad was an engineer, I'd probably make a good engineer. If you ever see me and my dad standing next to each other, yes, we do look an awful lot alike. But that wasn't anything in my heart of what I wanted to do, but that had, had been what everybody had told me I should be for the rest of my life. 
It made me start questioning. It opened my mind to a whole concept outside of it. And that's what Jesus is doing here in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 35. He's asking a question that begins to open up everybody's eyes to the lies, to the misconceptions, to the false truths that had been being taught by the scribes. So please stand with me as we read. Then Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstools. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrons. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you search our hearts. That through your scripture, that through your word, we can know what the truth is, that we may align our hearts with that truth that through our actions that we honor you by following that truth, to show ourselves loving you fully with all of our heart. And Lord, all that we offer up in givings, whether it's of our time, of our resources, or our materials, or our mind, or whatever other part that we offer up to you, Lord, that we do it with a clean and conscious heart, one that does so with joy in it. For, Lord, it is our heart that you are concerned with. That it wills, or that your will is to love you with our whole heart. So, Lord, help us have a heart that loves you. Amen. Please be seated. These three sections of Scripture seem to have very different concepts wrapped into them starts out with a challenge against the scribes saying, hey, listen, you know, they teach that David is the, or that the Messiah will be the son of David. That he will come from the lineage of David, which isn't a lie. This is something that is told throughout Scripture that the Messiah would be that passed down from David. But there's also other verses that talk about how he will be from God and that David himself here aligns it or aligns himself with being under the Lord that is to come. 
what Jesus is saying is that the scribes had been teaching something of their own heart. See, the scribes had been known that they were looking for a conquering king to come in to push out and repel Rome up and out of Jerusalem and out of the area of Israel. See, what they were hoping was that a man would come strong enough to raise up the Israelites to push out. They were looking for a human who could get the job done because that would bring peace to them. That would raise them up a bit because if the king came as a human, as a man, then they, as religious leaders, would be able to have some justness over him. See, of their own heart, they were hoping that a man would come. So they were teaching that it would be the son of David. Simply just flesh and blood that David throughout lineage would have been part of bearing down upon them. Instead of understanding that even David himself understood that the Messiah who was to come would be his Lord. Would be something greater than himself that he would bow before. See, now in the old day terms, this would have been totally out of understanding. Why? Because your son would never rule over you because the only time that they would take the throne was when you died. So you'd never bow yourself before your own fleshly son. See, so David understood that the Lord that he would bow before, the Lord that he would be held accountable to was so much more than just flesh and blood. This becomes a heart issue on the scribes. See, what they wanted was they wanted to maintain power. They wanted to maintain some semblance of control over what the kingdom to come was to be. It was a heart issue. And Jesus calls them out. Why would you teach that? Why would you not teach that the great Lord that was to come wouldn't be from flesh and blood, but would be from God alone? This was given to David by the Holy Spirit that God himself had imposed upon him that, hey, you need to understand that it is not flesh and blood that will rule in the kingdom. It will be my rule that is in the kingdom. It will be my will that is in the kingdom. We need to understand the heart behind it. See, the people heard this and they were glad They were happy to finally hear that maybe, just maybe, there was something more than what the scribes had been teaching because it didn't seem to matter what the scribes taught. It didn't seem to quench their thirst of what God was offering them. And so they were glad in this teaching. Now what that all entails, we don't know. It doesn't go into long definitions about that, but we can understand that in hearing Jesus say that David himself understood that the Lord came from God. It was not just his flesh and blood that this made people happy, that they seemed to understand something greater in these words that brought them hope. He moves on, he starts teaching. Or, I'm sorry, before I move on. This gives us an understanding that the scriptures are to speak directly to our heart. Jesus doesn't challenge the scribes' sayings by saying, well, I think you're wrong, I think this. He goes back and he uses that which has authority in their life. That which we should all be putting our heart towards is Scripture. Not the teaching of man, but what Scripture says. I've told you time and time again that while I may be up here speaking to you, you need to go back and validate what I say by reading Scripture, by challenging me, by making sure that I'm accurate on what I say. In fact, I look forward to it because in that process, if someone does it and says, hey, I didn't understand it, or I'm not sure that that's what Scripture does say, we can go back and together learn 
deeper. It helps me in my walk. It helps the person that comes up to me in their walk. I don't look, I don't look poorly upon it. In fact, I look at it as a blessing upon me. Because it's the scripture that builds our hearts. And unlike the scribes, I'm not afraid to sit there and say, I may have misunderstood something, or I may not have the full picture of what that has to say. Because I am not God. None of us are God, and we will never understand everything that he has presented to us. But to sit there and teach a falsity is detrimental. It doesn't just break us down or separate us out. It crushes our heart because we're no longer aligned with God. And so the scriptures are to direct our heart, to build us up, to make us strong, because they do not change. Think of how many different thought processes or philosophies have been brought up over the years since scripture was wrote and handed out. And how many of those things have changed and warped and come and gone and dissipated, but yet scripture still stands to be true in its wholeness. So why would we rely on the words of man instead of going back to Scripture and understanding the teachings it offers versus the teachings that man may offer us? When I say man, I mean all of humanity. So the first section of the heart needs to be built up by Scripture. To rely on Scripture more than what we ourselves understand. To go in and understand the truth that is there and to not turn our backs from it because of our lack of understanding to it. He moves on, he ratches it up just a bit with the scribes. He says, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive great, greater condemnation. What he's talking about here is he's telling the people, be careful not to be influenced by bad people, by people who are doing the wrong thing, to protect your heart from bad influence. I think that rings true to all of us because in each and every one of our days, each and every one of our lives, we have relationships where maybe people aren't the best and we walk alongside of them for many reasons. Maybe we have to because we work with them or we go to school with them. Maybe they're our next door neighbor. Maybe they're the person that we always bump into, it seems like, whenever we go to you know, the local grocery store or something to that extent. But their lives are just filled with bad things. Maybe they're a close, dear friend from our childhood that we just can't separate ourselves from because of that closeness and that friendship that had built all those years ago. Maybe it's a relative But whoever that is, their life is nothing but a bad influence. Their choices are caustic or, or breaking down. They pursue things that are self-destructive. Maybe they're that negative person that's in the cubicle next to you at work that just never seems to be able to sit there and smile about anything that happens in life. You come in and you say, hey, it's a beautiful morning. Yeah, well, maybe for you it is. Yeah. Those people. But the fact is, as they come across our heart, they start affecting us in a way. And what Jesus is saying is don't let their example, don't let the way they walk their life influence you to walking the same way. Beware of them because they will cause you to fall, cause you to stumble, cause you to not honor God, to not give him your heart. He uses some pretty 
basic examples here. Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. So in other words, those who have high feelings about themselves, so they dress in a way that only kings or um, governmental officials would have dressed back in those days. They dress themselves in fine clothes so everybody will see, oh, look at that person over there walking. They must be important. Right? Don't be like them. Love greetings in the marketplaces. Oh, it's so great to see you, so and so. You're, t- you know, by using title. It took me a long time for people to call me pastor, not to sit there and go, "Oh, I'm Scott." I get it. I understand it. I don't, I, I'm, I'm past that now. I'm at the point where I, okay, I understand that that's part of who I am. But I'm okay with that now. But when I first started, I, I thought about times like this, like people come up to you and put, "Pastor Scott, how are you?" I'm, I'm good. Because I don't want to worry about stuff like that. These people that we see out there who insist that you call them by their titles. I had a boss that was like that, that whenever we were in a certain situation, it had to be used. So-and-so wasn't just so-and-so, it was title so-and-so. I don't want to give out names because I don't want to put it out there. But it was title so-and-so whenever we were in a certain environment. And that was the only way he would refer to us. It was the only way he would cross a conversation or have a have a, anything to do with us in that situation because he was built up on his title. Well, that talks to our pride, the fact that we don't see ourselves just as simple creation like everybody else on this planet and that we're doing certain things and yes, we may be in certain positions in our lives, but that doesn't make us any better, that humbleness that we're asked to walk with. So those who love greetings in the marketplaces are, are being called out as being those who aren't very humble in their lives. Don't fall prey to that. Don't let that become you. Let yourself be humbled. The best seats in the synagogue and the best places at the feast, so in other words, to walk in and to take up the best places or uh, assign it. So in the synagogue, that would have been the seats up front that faced everybody else. So the scribes were worrying about that. that They had to get there early because if there were too many scribes, there wouldn't be enough seats. And scribes kind of roamed. They weren't assigned to a certain synagogue. So they might roam between. So they would get there and they would sit up front and that was a place of honor. Don't let yourself be drawn because that's not what this is about, what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is this. It doesn't matter where you sit. It's where your heart is when you're sitting in that building. When you're sitting before God, it's where your heart is. It doesn't matter where you sit. He doesn't care about that. Who devour widows' houses. So back in those days, a widow, even nowadays to some extent, was vulnerable. But back then, a lot of a lot of communities didn't allow women to own property. They weren't allowed to run businesses outright. And so when they became widowed, when their husbands would die, they would be very vulnerable. And so what he's saying is the scribes who come in and use that as an opportunity to gain for themselves in a place where they should have been there for trust and for nurturing and for caring and for helping that person through a difficult situation, they step in instead for bettering their own outcome. To devour up their houses, to sit there and say, hey, you can't do this, but let us take that off of you. We'll take that. So you no longer have to worry about it. They were using a person's desperate time for their betterment. These are all influences. If you watch, it'd be really easy to fall into. And in fact, I hear it all the time, especially a few years ago during the house collapse that 
people would sit there and say, oh, and you heard it on the radio all the time, I have a sure way for you to make money. Just come to my session and I'll teach you how to buy and sell houses at cheap rates using other people's money. In fact, I just heard it the other day when I was driving around, so this hasn't totally left our community. So when people reach places where they're about to lose their homes because of foreclosure or for sickness or whatever might be driving them to that place, there are people who are looking to capitalize off of that for their benefit. That's exactly what these scribes were doing. But yet it's so easy because we hear money. We hear, we can make lots of it. We get drawn into it because it tickles our ears. It makes us feel like we should go in that direction. He's saying, don't fall prey to that. Stay away from those. Don't act in that nature. And for the pretense of making long prayers, these people who stand up and drone on and on and on in the synagogues would have been the case of praying for this or that or the next thing and just continually speaking so that their voice was being heard over everybody else's. It doesn't say don't pray. That's not what I'm trying to say here. It doesn't mean that you can't go into deep, long, heartfelt prayer. But to stand up in a public place and drone on and on and on about things that may or may not matter to anybody is asking for people to see you as being something great. As a religious leader who has something to say about every opportunity. But when we come into it, we should enter in with a heart, not for what people think about us, but for offering up good, solid, honest prayer to God. To bow our heads before the Father takes a sense of submitting our hearts to his will. To open our minds to hear what he has to say. Not to hear our own words being droned out time and time again. Jesus is talking that at each and everything that you do, make sure your heart is in the right place. That you're protecting your heart from being influenced from all these bad influences that are around us. So whether they're within the church or outside of the church, whether it's at work, within the family, whether it's in the community or some faraway place that we happen to catch an article on TV about. You need to make sure that you check your heart to make sure that it's not being drawn away by bad things, but yet being drawn closer into where God wills you to be, what God is asking you to honor inside of that. The final section, the, the widow's offering, is actually a concept about having a heart of sacrifice. I have a title in there, have a heart of sacrificial love. I love how Jesus does this. He says, now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. So this is an interesting thing. The treasury was inside the court of Gentiles where people are passing back and forth. And this is a free will offering area. This isn't the place where you'd come in and put your tithe. It's not where you'd come in and offer up your offerings. It was just a place for free will. And there would have been boxes out in the area and you would just come in and you'd put stuff in. Now, some reports say that certain boxes would have like a trumpet-like dome on it. And that people, when you pour your money in or you drop your money in, it would echo because of how this thing was made. It would make sound so that everybody in the, in the court could hear it. And so I can just imagine Jesus and his disciples are standing there, and Jesus is just kind of watching, and he's, he's going through it. Um, it says, And many who were rich put in much, and then one poor widow came. Now I want to sit there, and I want to point out something, because we have to be a little careful with this. A lot of us sit there and say that, oh, shame those people who put in much, who are rich. It's not what Jesus is saying at all. He doesn't comment at all. He just says, yeah, there's a lot of people who are putting in a lot of money because of they're rich. Right? But it goes on. It says, then one poor widow came and threw in two mites 
that's who he calls over for his disciples, or his disciples to come over at that point. Why? Because he's concerned about the heart of the issue. And that's exactly what he speaks about. He says, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. So he's not making a scathing comment against those who have been putting in. What he's saying is, at the heart of the issue, when you, when you have a comment, and, or when you, when you come in and you have a giving of, of any type, if you do it out of your abundance, it doesn't make it not worthy. It doesn't make it bad. But it's a lot easier. Rick Warren, a few years ago, made a comment on public TV, and I was kind of like, why did you say that? He, he was putting out and he had made like $10 million a year before. And he stood up and he said, yeah, but I gave like 90% of that way. My first concept as I'm doing math is 10 million, 90%, that's 9 million. That means that, there ten, that you have a million dollars left. Oh, so poor you, right? Right? But then I started thinking about it. It didn't diminish the fact that he'd given $9 million of his, his profit away. $9 million. Can you imagine what $9 million could go into doing ministry across the world? It's a huge amount of money. So Jesus isn't diminishing that. He's not saying, oh, poor, bad Rick Warren, you should have given that last, that last, you know, 950,000, so you only have 50,000. He's not saying that at all. But what he's saying here is at the heart of it, this woman who came in with two bits and put it in, that was probably her day's salary from the day before, is what a lot of the commentaries were saying, gave her whole livelihood at that moment. And remember, this is a free will offering. This wasn't a requirement. It wasn't the tithe to the temple to make sure that the temple would function. This was a free will offering. This was going to be distributed to those who needed help in the community. Those Jewish believers who were having a hard time. And she gave out of her poverty, her wholeness. This was a sacrificial heart. So she understood at the heart of it that God would care for her, that he had always cared for her. That she knew there were people in need, so she was willing to donate at a time of need. That's what he's talking about here. That's why he calls them over, is because he can use it as a heart lesson. Not a lesson about giving, even though that is what it can be used for. But a lesson about where is your heart when you call yourself a follower of God? Do you give sacrificially? See, when you have abundance, it's easy to give large sums because it doesn't affect you on a sacrificial base sometimes. So, you, But when you have little and you give, that does affect you. You've made a commitment to your heart to give in that way. Now let's change this a little bit because this can teach us so much more than just money. What if, what if it's about time? We always hear time's money in our society more. That's we are so driven by the clock, it's scary some days. Because time is money. But how many of us are willing to give up time to serve God in the capacity? How many of us have time in our day that we set aside so that if we come into a place where God's calling us to sit down and just talk to someone or share with someone or be with someone, we have the allotment of time to do so? Or have we filled our lives so full of those tasks, those things, that we no longer have that time? longer be sacrificial of our time. So out of our abundance of it, we can give, but only that which is nominal. See, what he's, ta- what he's trying to get at is the fact that we have to have a heart of sacrificial love. To be able to give away those things, whether it's of our time, 
that we trust God. If you stick around for the Bible study, hopefully you'll kind of talk about 1 Corinthians 2, where he, I'm sorry, <laughs> 2 Corinthians 16 is the one, it's verse 2. Um, Paul tells them that, put aside at the beginning of the week. But what does that mean for your heart? That means that you've come to a place at the beginning of the week before all your expenses accumulate, before everything that comes down, you've set aside that which you're honoring God with. You're making a choice to honor God, to sacrificially put that aside for God so that nothing else will come before it. That's trusting God. That's a heart that truly comes and kneels before the throne and says, I trust you to provide all that I need. And I will have joy in all that you give me. What Jesus is saying in these three sections is that let the scriptures be what teaches your heart how to feel. Let the scriptures be what build up your heart. And then to protect your heart from those influences that are bad in your life. We can only do that if we do the first one. If we don't have a good source to come into and let it build up our heart, give us strength in our heart, if we don't have a good founding understanding of scripture, then how can we dare say that we're going to not be influenced by those bad influences? Because we won't know they're bad influences. I think this is one of the hardest things for people to understand is we don't say that things are bad because we just think it's bad for your life. We can say it's bad because God has declared it as not being a good lifestyle. And because we understand it and we live by it, we can understand why it's bad in your life. Whether it's your personal life or someone else's life, it's because we understand that God has said, hey, that's not a good way to live life. And then the final thing that he asks us to do is make sure that we have a heart that's willing to have sacrificial love, to love others even at our own cost sometimes. Because that's a love that truly steps out. That's a love that echoes what happened on the cross. A love that echoes on the cross is a love that's willing to go the distance even though it means pain and suffering for the one who's going that distance. That is true love. Jesus shows us this on the cross. He goes to the cross. He's beaten, ridiculed on the way. He is pinned to the cross for us. That is love that goes the difference. That is sacrificial love at his own cost, at a cost beyond anything that he ever owned. It's his own. He still chooses to go. That is what our God has done for us. He's asking us to love in the same way that we've been loved. To love sacrificially. We could turn to Colossians 3. Verses 12 through 17. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, 
to which you also are, which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here we have a beautiful sum-up of what a Christian life is to look like. What Jesus was telling the Jewish listeners in Mark is exactly what we're being asked to follow here. To go to the Scripture, to let that be your well, to let that be what creates strength inside of you, following a good life, an honest life, a, a life that honors God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's exactly what that means there. So let God's wisdom be what fuels you. And he says at the top, he says, you know, that those who are the beloved of God put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. That's exactly the second part of Mark where he says, don't let those bad influences, those who pridefully go out and say, look at me, I'm someone who's important. You should honor me for who I am. Instead, we should go out with meekness and humility. We should share uh, tender mercies and kindness. And above all, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. We are united to God because we are bonded through the love that Christ shows on the cross. That is the perfect bond of love. That we are drawn into God through God's own actions, not through our own, but through what he has done. He has brought us back together through his love for us. That's the third part. That sacrificial love. He has shown it to us. Now it's our job to call it out to others. Not even just to call it out, but to do it out to others. When we share God's love sacrificially, when we share those blessings that he has given us sacrificially to the point where we trust only in him to make our needs met, then people can truly see that we love God with our whole existence. The woman, the widow, at the treasury gave all she had for that day, trusting that God would provide later on. She gave sacrificially because she understood that God had given sacrificially. While many who might come in and give out of abundance may never understand the true work that God has done in their lives, she understood the great work that he had done in her life through all the scribes' false teachings, through all their hypocritical living, through all their bad influence, she had known the true worth was in her life, and she was willing to give everything to it to ensure that others would understand it also. That's what we're called to do. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In other words, no matter what you do, you don't do it for yourself whether you're speaking or doing something, you're doing it for God. Let that be why you do all things. And give thanks for that to the Lord Jesus through the Father. As we go out this week, the challenge is to 
to love in a way that everybody can recognize that it's the Lord Jesus who is supplying that love. And do it with a thankful heart, not with a prideful heart or one looking for high praise given back to you, but simply to do it so that they can experience it, so that they may know who God is. And at the end of it, so there's no question, give thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ so that there's no question in their mind. See, so many people go out and do good things every day of their lives, but they do it for their own pride. And that doesn't change a life because there's no existence past that. Because at a certain time, we're going to be sick of giving to someone, and they're not going to sing our praises anymore, so they're going to lose our ear. But when we remember that everything we do is for God, for God's love that he's shown us on the cross, at the end of the day, when we do good, we do it for him, and we give thanks so that all may know that it is to God that we give thanks. And that sets a tone for people to understand that there's something more than what we have here in the flesh. And they'll start asking questions. They'll start hearing that God is at the center of our lives. And maybe there might just be something, just a little something that they might find inside of there. When we live with tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and a willingness to have long-suffering, but we do so with love in our heart and a thankfulness to God. People will see a difference in us. Because we won't sell them short, we won't cast them off, we will be there for them. We'll be there emotionally, we'll be there to walk through with them, we won't abandon them during their darkest times. Suddenly we are no longer described as being the bad influence, we become a good influence. Each and every Let's answer that call. Let us be the widow.